Hello and welcome back to another episode of the EC DataWorks podcast. I'm Phil Serenides. And I'm Missy Coffey. And today we're going to be talking about how state leaders are measuring the success of their ECIDS. Yeah, I think as we reflect on where we have been as the field, right, a decade ago or so, as folks were starting to, to spend some funds and investing in the early childhood integrated data systems, we saw a lot of state leaders talk about how having the system was going, it was kind of the output, right? Once we have this, we're going to be able to do all these wonderful things. And I think that that is the hope and dream. But I think as we've realized over the last 10 years, one, it takes a long time to get there. And so measuring success takes a long time. Yeah, getting to the system is a success. And I think that you know, while you and I have talked so much about the need to go beyond simply having the system, it's also important to track the progress and to understand all the wins that are required along the way to even get there. And I know that early on in the conversations I've had, you know, just even getting the data, that was difficult. And we were hitting brick walls. But once we were able to gather the data, the next uh, step was to integrate it. And that, that took a lot of effort. But then once you have the integrated data, there's so many other hurdles that need to be crossed. And so having the analytics to be able to really find solutions to problems with the data and then having the organizational capacity and leadership to move forward with those actions. All of these things are really part of how we're thinking about indicators of success and progress in developing and using your ECIDS. Well, I think, Phil, you have experience from your, in your state as well as others that we've seen where the launch of the ECIDS itself was a success and it was, is, you know, well publicized and used, but then it led to, you know, folks wanting more and more information. And so I think part of it's also we're going to hear from some, some states about how they're thinking about continuously improving and enhancing their systems. Once they are launched, how do you know that it's being used? But also, how do you, how do you continue to meet the need that you've kind of created, hopefully, in your state? So we're really talking about incremental progress, um, but that's part of a long-term strategy. And so many people in public sector, you know, really understand this uh, notion of the tyranny of the urgent, where, you know, you're constantly having your priorities uh, sort of restructured for you, and it can be difficult to really maintain uh, sustained effort, which is what ECIDS often requires. And that prevents the type of self-assessment and reflection that enables a team or an office to shift gears if they need to. And so part of having a reasonable and feasible set of indicators of success that are appropriate to your stage of ECIDS development and use. So sustainability and effectiveness are related because if you're not thinking about it from the beginning, it's really hard to sustain. These are often costly uh, to build, or time-consuming for state staff often for to get them off the ground. So that means that even from the beginning, thinking through where, how are these going to be sustained beyond the life of any particular grant that's being funded for it? And people often think about it from a funding perspective. But I think what we've learned from states over the last decade is that it's also very resource-driven as well. And so if you're, you need to think about that from the beginning and developing a system that will be able to be responsive and evolve to the needs of states as they change over time. And I think that's really important as we're seeing right now and uh, with states who have, been, who have an ECIDS have been able to very quickly be responsive to some of the requests that their policymakers of them regarding COVID and what programs are staying open. And again, just being responsive has been, really meant that their systems have been designed in such a way that they can evolve with them over time. And thinking about that from the beginning 
was really important in thinking through how they're going to sustain these systems over time to be responsive to the needs that they, they may not even known about four or five years ago when they released these systems. Right. And so it's, it's uh, part of the conversation is about being able to, you know, have resilient systems and be able to um, have a strong system in place that can get through many different types of challenges, both leadership, uh, technology, financial. But the other side of this is making sure that you do have a real strategy and plan. So, Phil, as we've been thinking and working with states on, on how they're measuring success and able to communicate their success out to others, again, we've talked about the process pieces and how they, how they talk to folks and how they've engaged folks. You know, we've talked about that in previous episodes. You know, and today we're really thinking through how are states measuring this? How are they communicating it out? And we're going to hear from folks about that. But I think it's also important to realize that when we, when we say measuring success, a lot of the states initially just went to the we're using our Google Analytics. We're seeing how many people are tapping into the data, who's coming to which reports on our system. And we've really encouraged them to go beyond that. So do you have some recommendations on, for states who are just getting started? One way to think about the work and the success in the work is just simply, you know, in terms of a logic model. Um, you have inputs and resources that lead to activities that can be structured over, you know, different phases leading to outputs and eventually the outcomes you want. And if you're so focused on outcomes, it can be very difficult, one, to be able to appreciate all of the effort and success in getting to those outcomes, but also it can be um, a little bit disappointing, especially for stakeholders that need to be remain engaged over several years of time. And so having a sort of sense of tracking and sort of measuring and appreciating all of the steps along the way can not only be a good engagement strategy, it can be a good motivational strategy, but it can just be a very pragmatic way of thinking about uh, accomplishing the work. One of the uh, conversations that we've already shared was with Stephen Matherly at Utah, and we have a chance now to listen to more of that conversation related to this topic um, where he has really been able to find those opportunities for celebration uh, of those small successes along the way in ways that have propelled the work. I mean, uh, the data that I mentioned that we have in our CAT, there's dozens and dozens of additional indicators that we could bring in. But we need data it needs to be user-friendly uh, for your stakeholders, especially your legislators. They don't have time to go digging around for this and that. You need to present this data in a very usable, you know, format. Uh, you can pull those reports and you know, you, you know what you're looking at and you know what the data means and what it doesn't mean. But, as I mentioned... <clears throat> These products are never done uh, for years. We've been operating, for, you know, for over a decade uh, through the uh, the Collective Impact Systems Grant and through this, you know, the State Advisory Council, and working on very wonderful and progressive uh, and needed things. However, not w without a lot of leverage to actually see it through, you know, to really get it done. And now we have this governance body that we can take our highest uh, recommendations, whether that's in the area of early care and education or, or data integration or, or professional development registries or core competencies. We can take these recommendations to a legislative body that has the lieutenant governor and the executive directors 
of our, our, our powerful state agencies, such as our Utah State Board of Education, our Department of Human Services, the Department of Health, and the Department of Workforce Services. Those executive directors can sit down uh, with the lieutenant governor and hear our recommendations and really go about getting it done. What does getting it done look like? Well, getting it done looks like, hey, we're going to need ongoing, sustainable, dedicated funding. Uh, for data projects of this nature and for programs and services like I you know, just alluded to. And, you know, uh, on a related note, that's what we need also, you know, from, from the federal uh, government as well as from uh, uh, a, a philanthropic agencies such as, uh, you know, the Kellogg Foundation and, and Gates and Heising uh, Simons and, and, you know, uh, groups like that. We, uh, it's never done. And so you need <clears throat> ongoing sustainable funding and scopes to continue to improve uh, the data products. Technology is always changing and the business intelligence tools are changing and the type of data that, that people need needs to be even more nimble and really, really get down to a pinpoint level uh, so that it's effective, you know, effective for everybody. And then, of course, kudos to my many stakeholders. Uh, they, they also realize what it takes to uh, change families, change children, change system. All of them realize it's 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 you got to be in it for the long haul. But there is reward. I mean, when you see things like I've mentioned, the legislation that created our Utah Data Research Center and the legislation that created our Early Childhood uh, Governors Commission, we just produced, as I mentioned, a, a strategic uh, needs assessment for the state and a, and a strategic plan. And, and so, you know, every once in a while, something becomes fully tangible. We have uh, we, we have the community assessment tool out there that people are clicking on and, and changing and giving us feedback. We've got those eKids reports. That they're out there. We're adding data sources all the time. Now it's tan it's tangible, real numbers, real language, real you know, uh, uh, real data, and uh, you know that's what keeps us all moving along as those uh, successes as, as you go. Steve, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned the human side of change, which I think is is a really important part of managing that. And you're so optimistic. You you have a you know you bring hope to the many stakeholders and to the uh, constituents um, uh, for, for, for the road ahead, um, which, which can be critical when folks are looking at what they, what they have and they're worried they're not going to be able to make progress because the challenges seem too great or the resources too small. And so uh, how, can, how can you advise um, others to think about making sort of slow pro uh, progress and being able to uh, respond to risks and mitigate them as, as they come. Well, as I alluded to, it's also, it's a tremendous about, about expectations. <laughs> what, and you're, you know, what do you anticipate? What, what do you really expect? And then, you know, setting that up, what's reasonable, what's realistic and set up, your uh, strategic plan, set up your timelines and set up little indicators along the way that you can pat yourself on the back about, you know, because it, it all doesn't materialize at once, but all of a sudden getting a thumbs up from your legal staff that this data sharing agreement looks okay and now you can send it out. That's huge. That's huge. Receiving one back, signed. Hey, oh, that's amazing. 
developing the extract that has been approved uh, and ready uh, to integrate into your master person index and into your system, that extract that, that's going to work well in your system. And, you know, that's another win. Now that extract was actually received and you're getting data out of it. Oh, that, that's another win. Now, now you validate this data <laughs> and, you know, with the data source and yourself and, and, and now you have another win. So, I mean, I'm getting at baby steps, right? You got to, you got to, you know, what's your end goal? What's that end product? Now, what do all the little baby steps and, and the wins look like as, as you go along? You know, having a meeting, having people show up at your meeting and, and actively participate. That's a huge win wrestling through the data governance issues and the, we did some wrestling <laughs> it wasn't as easy as i'd articulated but then eventually getting to a product that everyone rose their hand you know raises their hand and, and votes i you know there there's another win so you have to have really kind of appropriate realistic expectations and goals and timelines and you have to be dynamic within that uh, since some things are going to change as you go along and you're going to have some do-overs and you know that's just the way it is and that that's why i like so much about that article the ounce of uh, prevention's uh, e-kids uh, unofficial uh, you know a d- data you know a source a data policy guide that's it the guide because it really articulates these things and that's really the way it is that's really the way it is on, on you know on the ground <laughs> It really is, you know. The, the, this work it takes time. It's expensive. It takes it takes a team approach, and um, you know it's it's tempting to want to try to move too fast. Uh, I really appreciate how you were uh, discussing the importance of celebrating those wins along the way. That's not only critical, I think, to to keep people engaged but also to set the pace so that you're not just becoming uh, reactive, um, but that you actually have a, a strategy that you're implementing with appropriate expectations, recognizing that it will take um, a lot of investment and time. And so you can chart a course for all the steps to get there. And I think you've done a great job really helping to, to not only set the direction, but the pace of the work. And so I want to I want to uh, congratulate you on that and thank you for uh, spending some time talking with me about all that you've learned and accomplished. Thanks, Phil, for talking to Steve. That was such an informative conversation about how to measure success along the way, which I think given the length of time that it often takes to create an ECIDS is a really important topic. Absolutely, I agree. Um, when we think about successful ECIDS, we don't want to limit ourselves to simply having the data and think about what, what comes next, but we also don't want to forget about everything that comes up to and leading up to having an available system in production where you have you know, multiple agencies uh, supplying information. And understanding the partnerships, the relationships, the trust, the, the administrative hurdles, the legal hurdles, the technical hurdles, each of those represent steps along the way and are a helpful guide um, to, to, to making good progress that other states can learn from. And Steve did a really nice job of communicating with his group and talking about what expectations um, 
should be for something that takes this long to create and giving those quick wins along the way. But also just managing the expectations of the group along the way was really important. But he also did provide a nice job of those updates. But when you're engaged for this long, I think that's an important process to make sure that they understand. You know, we've said so many um, things that Utah's done right. And here's another. You know, one of the, the um, strengths of Stephen's approach, uh, his leadership, is that he can both see the big picture and the details. And when it comes now to this topic of measuring success and defining indicators of progress, he both keeps the big picture and the long-term and goal, uh, goal in mind and has all these baby steps, these incremental changes that need to happen to get there. And that's a real strength of the, of the, of the leader that they have, of the approach that they have. And I think it also goes to show that it's not only incremental, but it's ongoing. I think we're going to hear from both Steve and from others as and throughout the series that this isn't, it's not done once you have the system, right? You continue to add new programs or add new data to maintain the quality of the information. It's an ongoing process. And so measuring the success is really hard when it is both iterative and kind of ongoing. It's not linear, that's for sure. A lot of the decisions, the realizations of where you need to go next are responsive. They're inductive. It's not a simple, linear, wind it up, watch it go process. And that type of back and forth or um, or desire or willingness to learn and to change uh, is is a struggle for people, (laughs) uh, for teams, and can be sometimes very hard for public sector agencies trying to do this work and be responsive. But responsive government is something that um, states have been able to learn from each other, and they've gotten federal support for this too. Yeah, and Race to the Top was one of the first federal grants that really focused on early childhood integrated data systems. So I was able to chat with Richard Gonzalez, who's been a regular guest on our series, and he's the Preschool Development Grant Project Manager for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the ACF, um, within the Office of Child Care. And he shared his perspective on the progress that grantees have made since the RTTELC grants and how they measured progress while they had the grants. Under the new Preschool Development Grant, Birth to Five, we now provided funding for a comprehensive statewide Birth to Five needs assessment and and a strategic plan related to what they learn. So states are able to take money for the first time that I know of, that I, that I can, that I am aware of, that they can actually spend large amounts of money to do an assessment across all early childhood birth through five programs and services. And by looking at that needs assessment, what they're now able to do is they're now able to take that needs assessment, what they're learning from the needs assessment, and they're able to create a comprehensive statewide birth to five strategic plan. And so again, unfortunately, the funding didn't continue. Um, the race to the top early learning challenge states, there were only um, so many that were funded, right? Um, I mean, over time. And then, and then when PDG came out, there was only so many funded. And now with PDG birth to five, there's only so many funded. And so, but what we were able to do with the, 
with with the first round of preschool development grant birth to five funding was we were able to fund every state that applied and got a passing score. And so that was like 44 states, DC and the Virgin Islands ended up getting funded so that we knew at the very least they were going to get to do a comprehensive statewide birth to five needs assessment and strategic plan. And we are hoping that it is off of that, that they will be able to uh, really then take another look because there's funding there for data systems, there's funding there for alignment, there's funding there for some of the information sharing. So what we're going to see also is a greater use of the connection of helping not only policymakers make make better decisions, but parents and staff make better decisions. So part of the money there is for meaningful family and parent engagement and sharing resources across, across programs and services. Why duplicate all these resources? Why duplicate all the TA? So what's starting to happen is states are creating portals of information so that parents can understand, look at the information being collected about quality programs, about, about where programs are located, about who has credentials, etc and make wiser decisions about where they want services or where or where the services exist and what services to go after and staff can learn more have more opportunity to not only build their qualifications but also look at what other competencies that have been deemed uh, important to to move forward in the field so we see this enhancement of knowledge um, uh, of content knowledge at the same time that we see um, a focus around the collection of data that could lead to more meaningful um, decision-making and reduction in uh, duplication of effort, uh, a greater alignment of policy, um, and actually, um, hopefully, uh, uh, more uh, ability to measure success or to measure efforts and the degree of success that they um, that they're able to acquire. Let's go back to the ELC time, right? At the end of ELC, what would like? What is one thing that you'd point to that you feel like really proud of in terms of the progress that was made using ELC around the data system work? I, I would say that over time, my opinion has changed. What I realized that um, that the work is much more challenging than we first anticipated. Um, and that in order to make progress first, you had to create the relationships between people. You had to have the people, the researchers and the people who knew what to do about data. They had to work with and talk to the program people and the program people had to create the relationship and help the data and researchers understand the issues they were concerned about in the collection of data and how they felt that this in somehow was going to hurt their families or hurt the program. And so I think what we got from the Race to the Top of Learning Challenge was at least the understanding and the commitment to bring people together to help educate each other uh, and inform each other better about what each other was doing, those folks in the data research world and those folks in the program world, so that they could understand the challenges both had uh, and move toward greater trust. And so what you began to see also is you began to see uh, more thoughtful development about the data that was being collected individually. What I don't think we saw in the Race to the Top of Learning Challenge was um, any movement, any real movement toward integrated data system yet. 
we were still trying to, they were still working out relationships and how do I, um, what do I have to do in order, one group would tell the other group, well, we are not allowed to share data. And they'd have these perceived barriers that were actually only perceived, but they thought they were real. And so they had to spend a lot of time talking about the barriers and just sharing information with each other and with the federal government just to be able to say, no, you know what, guess what? That is not a real barrier. That is not something that you can't do, or this is something that you can do. Um, and those conversations had to take place and they took a long time. And they are taking, they're still taking time, but, but we're seeing progress. So you see now more and more departments within states, um, having agreements with each other on how they're going to come together or what they're going to share or how they're going to share it or how often they're going to share it or who's going to oversee it. Or you see some states creating a data, a system that everyone can tap into. Um, so the, the race to the top early learning challenge, I think, allowed the opportunities for those hard conversations to take place for those misunderstanding and perceived barriers to be um, unco- and uncovered and addressed and for the, uh, the relationships to be built in such a way that they could actually begin to dive into, hey, now we might be ready to talk about data and what are the data questions we need to answer. That's so great to hear, Richard. Thank you for sharing that perspective of what is so exciting about the future of the, the work that's being done in states now and how they can continue to leverage both federal resources as well as the work that they're doing in their states to really make progress. And so, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for uh, providing the insight and the great work that's been done. We really appreciate what you've done for the field to really be um, supportive to the states in this work. This is very hard work, as you mentioned, and I think that you've been a really strong advocate for the early childhood data work and really helping states to see the opportunity that it provides. So thank you for doing that, Richard. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and your kind words and and and. This I love doing it, and so uh, we're just we're going to just continue our efforts together to help straight make states more successful. So thank you. Have a great day. Missy, thanks for sharing that that portion of your conversation with Richard. Um, so much great information in there and perspective. Um, it's, it's more than data. Um, it's more than even creating greater knowledge. Um, but, um, he, he really kind of drove home for me this need for greater capacity, capacity, not just to get better and better at answering questions, but really better and better at asking questions, better questions, and then doing so in the context of partnerships with across agencies where you have that trust and understanding about the informational needs that are shared. So thank you. What, what were some of your thoughts? Uh, Richard brought up a really critical point about engaging across state agencies being just one of the many measures of success, but a really important measure of success, because especially in early childhood, those who may not understand that the variety of programs that are both federal and state implemented at the local level need to work together to provide comprehensive services. And I think Richard really highlights both the difficulties, but the opportunity that is afforded by doing this and how the EC ideas fits in as a tool and a resource for those conversations. So I had a chance to talk to Anita Larson, who oversees the data team for the Minnesota Department of Education and is the former EC IDS lead, and Jen Verbrugge, who is the current EC IDS lead for the Minnesota Department of Education about this particular topic. Let's listen in. Thank you.
Missy Coffey, one of the PIs for EC DataWorks, and I'm joined today by Anita Larson, who oversees the data team at the Minnesota Department of Education and is the former ECIDS lead, and Jen Verbrugge, who is the current ECIDS lead at the Minnesota Department of Education. So thank you for both for making time for this conversation today. I know that Minnesota was one of the original ECIDS um, states that went operational early, and we just want to hear a little bit more about the work, and, and specifically, what are you most proud of? I think one of the things that's most important for me when I look back on it is the fact that we now have a number of our very busy, very overburdened local local early childhood programs who are using the ECLDS to com complete their community needs assessments and a lot of really practical day-to-day -day and planning work that before they had to do by hand. And for me, that on the ground grassroots time savings and effort um, is really helpful to know. And I would say that I really appreciate that we in Minnesota were one of the first uh, states to have an ESIDS and that um, even with that, without a whole lot of background knowledge, we're able to build a system that is so usable and that other states are looking to as they are building their ESIDs. That's a great point. And can you explain a little bit more for, for folks who are considering what the design was like and those considerations? How was that an asset in Minnesota to actually build it in-house? I think, well, I think in all transparency, first of all, we learned a lot from our K-12 system that was built first we really learned a lot from what they had already done. And I think this was typical in a lot of states because the funding tended to fund the K-12 to higher ed systems first, and then the early childhood systems followed. In our case, I think um, there was a lot of value and control in building it as much as we could ourselves. We really contracted out very little and when we did contract out, we paid extra sometimes in our contracts towards the end of those contracts for those contractors to do knowledge transfer. And that was particularly true um, for the tail end of SLEDS, which is our K-12 to higher ed system, as well as um, the tail end of some of the contractors we had on our early childhood system. So I would strongly encourage states to do that because that way, especially when technology changes, you're able to do the work in-house. You're not constantly having to pay external contractors, which are so expensive. And you, f you feel, I think, a greater sense of um, flexibility. So if you want to change how something looks or how something performs, or if you find out that you haven't done suppression properly, for instance, you can actually take care of that. You don't have to go out for an RFP. And I think um, that was particularly valuable for us. This is a little bit harder for me to discuss in that we've not um, done a formal evaluation. And, um, and maybe it's because I have a background in that. And so when we talk about evaluating something, I think, oh, we haven't really done an evaluation. But I think at the end of the day, I'd be surprised if any of the states that have built ESIDs have really done a full-blown evaluation. I, I doubt it. Most of the time, we don't have a bandwidth to do things like that. And when I hear that our early childhood coordinator leads at the state 
are really instructing those programs at the district and local level to use our system and the data that we have and the tools that we have to build those community needs assessment, I know right away that we've saved time and energy and we're no longer having programs produce data for their reporting that is all over the map in terms of how they've calculated things. And I think that's something that's vitally important when we're talking about funding and we're talking about programs that are competing with one another for, for resources. Uh, you really don't want to introduce a lot of error in terms of how many kids of a certain community are being served. Are you meeting your goals in terms of your outreach? You really want everybody be working from the same playbook. And I think um, I know that that's an area where I feel we've been very successful. I think, too, that um, as time goes on and people do more cross program work and cross department work, I think our system's going to continue to be really important for that. Um, and I say that because what I've noticed is that I feel like the integrated data system work has kind of gotten ahead of how people are doing work in states. And as we've had more conversations, and I think to be timely during this time of COVID, and we're all trying to talk about how to be efficient, how do we make sure we communicate with shared populations effectively and things like that, that's really forcing us as differential programs within a state government system to think together. And when that starts happening on the practice side, we're we're here we're ready we've got these integrated data systems to help with that but it's almost until people are actually doing the cross-system work that they don't realize how incredibly valuable these integrated data systems are because there it is there's the data they can see that combines their part c with their early uh hearing and detect early hearing detection data um and that's a cross-sector effort that shares a service population. But until they're really thinking about it and doing it, sometimes it's we don't always have that leverage um, to be able to show them what they can do with the data. And I, I think that's just increasing the fact that people are seeing the system more of a reflection of their work now than before. Yeah, I will say that's something that I have, have observed. And now um, I'm in this whole new role where I need to really think about evaluation and the best way to do that. And so I'm sort of defaulting right now to the use. So um, I have a really good partner in IT who has set up some Google Analytics, and I am learning how to use those as well. But where we can, um, we can better track the daily use of our ESIDs and where I can see on an annual basis how many page views we had and those sorts of things. And that reassures me that we have a product that people are using and are coming back to. And um, we just keep adding more new users too, which is also exciting to me. And I need to do some some legwork to try to uh, identify how those people are learning about our system and how they're coming to the website. So there's this whole... Um, there are all these other evaluation doors that are opening that I can go through and learn um, as I continue this work. Um, and if there are any other 
uh, ESIDs in any other states that are actually conducting evaluation, I would love to learn from them too and how they're doing that. Um, and I would say too that uh, Anita is right in that she, as she was teaching me, like showing me the ropes, um, there were a lot of stakeholders that I think really struggled to come around to the idea of this integrated data system originally, that they felt so protective of their data and of the families, the kids that were represented by the data, that they just didn't trust putting it into a system where other people would have access to that data. Um, and they really, it's, there really isn't the same resistance anymore. There's now um, we're being contacted by um, by some departments and programs within those departments asking if they can include their data in the system because they see the value of it, of, of their data next to another program or another agency's data um, so that they can get a better view, a better look at these families that they're serving and that we're all serving and have a better understanding of, of what these families are going through what programs and public programs and services they're using and how they come out on the other side of that. So looking forward, I'd love to hear your thoughts of, you know, as you see the work progressing in the needs of your stakeholder, and as you said, Jen, more more data collect and more data contributors coming into the conversation, um, what are you most excited about? For right now, as Anita mentioned, um, we are living in this time of COVID-19 and uh, it's a whole new world for everybody. And um, one of our resources on our ESIDs is a comprehensive services map where um, originally it was intended as a, like a, um, a geographic look at um, public services resources that are close by an address. So you can type your address into the map and see where um, your nearest um, WIC office is, for example, um, something like that. And so that was its original intent, was to try to help connect people with resources in their neighborhoods. Well, we've sort of transformed its function now to be a COVID resource for our communities, where we've added some new layers, including um, locations of hospitals and nursing homes and correctional facilities, and um, now we're going to run an analysis um, f of how close emergency childcare sites are to these other um, these other essential sites, essential services, um, and try to find places where there might be um, where we might need to amp up, like perhaps emergency childcare locations, if that's possible. Um, and and just really to in this case, we're also helping to. Um, to prioritize some uh, child care grantees um, for their location um, proximate to hospitals and nursing homes and correctional facilities. So some of the funding would go more towards those sites that are closest to the places where we have those emergency workers who need child care are. So that's just a whole new use for the map that we had never envisioned before. And that really excites me to know that, you know, we had these ideas in mind of how we were going to use these resources we were putting out there. And then this whole new situation comes about where we need to really rethink what we have or, or just see opportunities for expansion. But also, I'm excited. We are meeting more needs and we are giving a better look at um, our community um, that is being served by these public programs and services across the state.
So how do you measure, how do you show progress over time when it's kind of an ever-evolving and adaptive system, and intentionally so? I think in addition to some of the things that Jen's talked about, the analytics and traffic and things like that, um, and the versatility, so using the comprehensive services map for our our, uh, COVID conditions that we're experiencing right now, I think... um, getting getting a better sense of its applicability to what's going on in programs and in the lives of Minnesotans is useful. And in particular, I'm thinking of um, our parent linking work and the potential there to um, really change the conversations that we can have, even with our K-12 to higher ed system. Because for the first time, we're having very different conversations with them about our ESIDs as we're discussing our parent linking. And those conversations are different because we're talking now about some of their individuals in their system and higher education attainment, what that means for workforce. We're able to kind of create a full circle where we can say to them, as partners in and stakeholders for that system, hey, these individuals are parents and they're parts of families, and here's how we can talk about what that does for kids when parents go on to higher education and earn better wages. And this helps our two gen programs. And it it's also even, I think, enriching our conversations in K-12 because early childhood has always been whole child and We've always talked about the child nested within a family in the ecological model. And something happens when those kids get into K-12. All of a sudden, it's like the family disappears. And that's always bothered me. And the time I've been at our Department of Ed, that there really is very little conversation about families. But I think this is another opportunity for us to shift that dialogue for the benefit of families if we can get our systems to acknowledge the importance of the information that we're gathering about how children's outcomes change when their parents' outcomes change. And I think we're just having, we have the capability of having much richer discussions about policy and practice now. Um, And that's something I'm excited about. And I think that's another way that we're going to be able to really evaluate the effectiveness of our system. Yeah, I will echo what Anita just said, because um, we look at our ESIDs alongside our um, our SLEDs, which is our K-12 through workforce um, system, and and we say that's a P-20W system, you know, from um, preschool or prenatal all the way up through workforce, but we're really always just looking at the individual within that, and the idea that we can maybe start to do a little bit more grouping along, along family lines is really exciting. To, to see how when one person evolves in that, how that affects the evolution of the others in the family. Thanks, Missy. One of the reasons why I, I really enjoy to learning from others and, and as we were hearing from the folks in Minnesota, is the practical ways that, that, that states are approaching the work. And as, as Anita and Jen were, were really describing 
and modeling how they can practice being reflective. It, it really made it feel possible for me because it doesn't require um, an entire additional evaluation component. Um, I think what it takes is being thoughtful um, and anything that you're doing, you know, by necessity, you just need to figure out how does it be part of the day to day. Yeah. And I think early on, you know, I think the first ECIDS self-assessment tool might have been, what, 2014, right? When states were starting to launch, and I think especially some of the RTTLC states that um, Richard refers to, we're really struggling with the, if this is going to take a couple years to launch and become operational, how do we how do we communicate and show progress in, in the process pieces, right? Or as, as Stephen refers to, right, the data governance components and the data sharing agreements and, and making sure that they had the steps along the way that they could track their planning. And I think that toolkit did a nice job of that. But as states became operational, uh, I think the state leaders, such as Anita and Jen, realized that toolkit took us to the operational stage. But now we're in this the data use phase and really need to understand how our analytics are being used and how we can better um, provide information out to the public or to our policymakers in a way that helps to inform them. But how do we gather information about how successful we are doing that? And so in this particular situation, I think folks in like, you know, Jen and Anita talked about that in their interviews throughout the series, but they had some really great information, but were really struggling to figure out why it was or wasn't being used. Yeah. To what extent did the original tools that they developed even have a specific use that was identified? I think those were the conversations they were having and realizing that in order to be impactful for the constituencies, for the audiences, for the data user groups, they really had to listen and learn and to create the tools that were meeting people where they were at. And it's not a traditional way of, of evaluating or, you know, even having some researchers come in and say, how are we doing? That, I think, you know, and Anita mentions this, right? She is a researcher trained to do that. And so she really struggled with how do we create indicators where it's really how are these tools being used in practice? How do we go about collecting information on, on their use? So we've had an opportunity throughout this podcast to hear a lot about how do you measure success while building the ECIDS, how to engage with multiple partner organizations and the importance of doing that to the long-term success of the ECIDS, and then also actually hearing what happens after you have the ECIDS and developing out analytics and making sure that it's useful to the, the, the users that you've intended for it to be. Yes, and, and hearing these perspectives together that as you said, Missy, bring us from the early stage work of first conversations with your stakeholders all the way to sort of, you know, version 2, version 3.0, thinking about the, the impact that the system reports are having out in the field shows the, the full gamut of, of activity, of, uh, of phases of the work, how multidisciplinary it is, and also of the great um, accomplishments that states have, have made to get that far and to see the work progress. Seeing states from, from early stage all the way to these, these, these late stages of accomplishment is, is inspirational. It's, it's, uh, I'm very glad that after so much investment in time, we really are seeing the renaissance of analytics that is demonstrating what the the potential and power of data can be for policy and practice. I'm glad that we have been able to be of some support along the way as, as partners are, are moving forward in their own paths. And I'm excited to see where the field goes next. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast series. You can find more information about the topics and state work at ecdwcommunity.org.